0: Tonight's top of the hour, Union steamboats stolen by Confederate cowboys, Canadians capture Italian town after tea and biscuits, and Turkish jets kill 34 people and call it a game. Plus, coming up, a special report on the magical world of the cat food industry.
1: Those are the headlines, now go away. Newsbang. The news for the blind, but not for the blind-sighted. 1862
0: Union forces dealt a crushing blow to the rebels today, capturing three Mississippi steamboats, a sackful of Confederate troops, and enough supplies to last them until next Tuesday. The Battle of Van Buren in Arkansas saw the Yanks overrun the city like an unruly mob at a shoe sale.
2: This victory is a major setback for the South's dreams of independence and expanding slavery to include even more people they don't like. Eyewitnesses described scenes of pandemonium as rebel soldiers fled faster than Nigel Farage from a foreigner.
0: General Ulysses S. Grant was later seen sipping mint julep on the veranda of a captured mansion, basking in his glory and muttering about unfinished business with General Lee. Meanwhile, in Richmond, Jefferson Davis vowed to fight on until every last person we own is free, before being led away by concerned staff.
1: 13. 1943.
0: World War II, where the 1st Canadian Infantry Division has captured Ortona, Italy after a gruelling eight-day game of hide-and-seek with the Germans, codenamed Operation Finders Keepers, the battle was so intense that even local children were drafted into service as human shields and snitches. The urban warfare in Ortona was likened to Stalingrad's Italian job due to its close quarters combat and frequent car chases through narrow streets.
2: Eyewitnesses described harrowing scenes as Canadian soldiers stormed Mrs. Rossi's bakery only to find it had been booby-trapped with freshly baked cannolis and screaming nonnas. Meanwhile, German paratroopers dug themselves into Signor Rossi's pizzeria, emerging only to lob molten mozzarella at their enemies below. The fighting was so fierce that one Canadian soldier, Private Johnson, was heard to say, I haven't seen this much tomato sauce since my last date with Gina back in Toronto.
0: The Allies finally emerged victorious thanks to their superior numbers and access to unlimited maple syrup rations. General Montgomery praised his men for their bravery in such sticky conditions. In other news,
1: 2011,
0: a catastrophic blunder in the ongoing Kurdish-Turkish conflict has left 34 innocent villagers dead after a game of who's got the biggest missile went horribly wrong.
2: Turkish F-16 jets, known for their short tempers and even shorter attention spans, accidentally fired on a group of unsuspecting farmers instead of their intended target, a nearby flock of rebellious sheep.
0: The Kurdish-Turkish conflict, which has raged on since time immemorial, shows no signs of abating anytime soon. The Kurds, who number anywhere between 30 and 45 million depending on who you ask at the UN barbecue, are demanding either independence or more rights within Turkey. However, with today's tragic mix-up likely to further inflame tensions, it seems that the only thing they'll be getting is more condolence cards and an irate phone call from Amnesty
1: International. News Bang. Taking the high road of truth and not the low road of lies.
0: Presenting the meteorological musings for the day, Shakanaka Giles.
3: Tomorrow, the 29th of December, we're expecting a mix of clouds and sunshine as if the sky's a bashful teenager trying to decide whether to show up at the party. Across the south, it'll be a mild day, like a gentle, comforting hug from a fluffy, oversized cardigan. In the north, there'll be a bit of of a chill, so make sure to wrap up warm. It's as if the cold's playing a game of tag and you're the one who's it. For those planning to celebrate the New Year's Eve hullabaloo, keep an eye on the sky. Fireworks might have to compete with a few scattered showers like a rowdy ex-wife trying to outshine the birthday boy. In summary then, mild hugs, chilly tag and slightly damp fireworks stay warm everyone and that's all the weather.
1: 2006.
0: Somalia's transitional federal government and Ethiopian forces have seized control of Mogadishu, culminating in a series of triumphs against the Islamic Court Union. This victory, however, has paved the way for the emergence of Al-Shabaab as a formidable insurgency following the ICU's downfall. The fall of Mogadishu occurred on December 28, 2006, after a series of victories against the ICU by the TFG and Ethiopian troops. To shed more light on the situation, we now turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable.
4: Brian Bastable, newsbang on the front line of the Somali civil war. The city is a cauldron of chaos. The streets are littered with the debris of war. The sound of gunfire echoes through the air. The smell of smoke and death hangs heavy. I stand here, in the heart of the battle as the forces of the transitional federal government and Ethiopian troops storm the city. The Islamic court union once a dominant force has been pushed back, their power crumbling. But as one enemy falls, another rises. Al-Shabaab, a prominent insurgency, has emerged from the ashes of the ICU. They are a force to be reckoned with their tactics brutal and ruthless the fighting is intense the stakes high the city is a battlefield the people caught in the crossfire the streets are a maze of destruction the buildings reduced to rubble but amidst the chaos there is a sense of determination the tfg and ethiopian troops are pushing forward their resolve unwavering they will not be stopped The fall of mogadishu is imminent the city will be theirs but at what cost the price of victory is high the casualties mounting this is the somali civil war a conflict that has torn the country apart a war that has claimed countless lives a war that has left a trail of destruction in its wake but even as the fighting rages on there is hope hope for a better future hope for an end to the violence, hope for a peaceful resolution. For now the battle continues, the city is a war zone, the stakes high, but the end is in sight, the fall of Mogadishu is near. Brian Bastable, newsbang on the front line of the Somali Civil War.
1: 2011 Turkish F-16 jets,
0: have mistakenly opened fire on a group of Kurdish villagers, resulting in the loss of 34 lives. This incident further fuels the ongoing conflict between Turkey and Kurdish insurgent groups, a struggle rooted in demands for independence or enhanced rights. The Kurdish population is estimated to number between 30 and 45 million. To shed more light on this escalating situation, we turn to our correspondent, Ken Shit. Ken, what can you tell us about the latest developments in the Kurdish Turkish conflict?
5: Good evening, degenerates. As we hurtle towards the future like a runaway freight train, let's take a moment to remember the year 2011, when the Kurdish Turkish conflict reached new heights of bloodshed and carnage. The Kurds, a people as numerous as the sands in the Sahara, have been fighting for their rights and independence within Turkey for decades. But in 2011, things took a dark turn when Turkish F-16 jets made a catastrophic mistake that would leave 34 innocent villagers dead. These weren't terrorists or insurgents, they were ordinary people going about their daily lives. Women, children, elderly folks, all caught in the crossfire of a senseless conflict that shows no sign of abating. The Kurds are a proud and resilient people but they're up against a powerful enemy in Turkey, and as long as this conflict continues, more innocent lives will be lost to the madness. This is Ken Shit reminding you that war is hell, and it's the innocent who pay the heaviest price. Let's hope that one day soon, sense will prevail, and these brothers and sisters will be able to live in peace and harmony.
1: 19. anti eighteen.
0: As the clock strikes 1918, history has been made as Constance Markievicz becomes the first female British member of Parliament, though she never takes her seat. A victory for Sinn Féin in the Irish general election spells defeat for the Irish Parliamentary Party, while Unionist Party triumphs in Ulster. Markievicz, the first woman elected to the Westminster Parliament and the first female cabinet minister in Europe, opts for abstentionism a political tactic employed by Irish Republican movements since the 19th century. Hardiman Pesto has more on this intriguing tale from Westminster.
6: Good evening, Martin. I'm here with our guest Constance Markovich, the first female British Member of Parliament, although she never took her seat. She was also the first woman elected to the Westminster Parliament and the first female Cabinet Minister in Europe. Pesto, you're live on air. Stop gushing. Of course, Martin. Let's begin, Constance. The 1918 Irish general election saw the defeat of the Irish Parliamentary Party and a victory for the Sinn Féin Party, which aimed to establish an independent Irish republic. The Unionist Party was successful in Ulster. Can you tell us more about this? Indeed. The Sinn
7: Féin Party's victory was a clear
6: message from the Irish people that they wanted independence from British rule. Constance, what was your role in the Sinn Féin party during this time? I was
7: a prominent member of the Sinn Féin party and played a significant role in the movement for Irish independence.
6: Pesto, you're going to let her leave it at that. You're right, Martin. Constance, can you tell us more about the concept of abstentionism and why it was used by Irish Republican political movements since the 19th century?
7: Abstentionism was a political strategy used by Irish Republican movements to refuse to recognize the authority of the British Parliament. It was a way of asserting Ireland's sovereignty and independence. The 1918 Irish general election was a turning point in Irish history. It marked the beginning of the end of British rule in Ireland and paved the way for the establishment of the Irish Republic.
6: Thank you, Constance, for joining us tonight. Pesto, thank
1: you. Newsbang,
7: the-
1: News Bang. The fountain of truth flowing with the force of fact.
0: Penelope Windchime now, with a poignant reflection on the huia, a bird that once graced New Zealand's skies. A tale of loss and a call to cherish our planet's treasures.
7: Enviro Moment with me, Penelope Windchime. Cast your minds back to the year 1907 a time when the air was presumably cleaner and the birds well they were certainly more mysterious on this very day in the lush green embrace of New Zealand's Tararua range the huia bird flapped its wattle for what would be the last time the huia not just any feathered friend but a wattle bird with wattles so grand they could tickle the stars now extinct it's said that the Huya's final core was mistaken for a polite cough by an oblivious hiker. The North Island, a landmass so significant it houses nearly four million souls today, was once the stage for this avian ballet. And as we remember the Huya, let us imagine it soaring over Kiwis and sheep alike, casting a shadow of wonder on all below so tonight, as you tuck into your evening kiwi fruit or snuggle into woollen throes, spare a thought for the Huiya. May its spirit wattle on forever in our hearts. I'm Penelope Winchime, and remember, extinction is forever. Satire is just for now.
0: Traffic tales of yore, a veritable time capsule of road rage, bovine sit-ins and aviation on the asphalt. Here's Polly Beep to navigate the labyrinth of yesteryear's transport woes.
8: Well, it's Thursday and we're diving into the traffic reports of the past. In 1879, the Tay Bridge in Scotland was the talk of the town. The bridge was in the news for all the wrong reasons. A storm caused it to collapse, leading to a heartbreaking loss of life. All aboard the train that crossed the bridge at the time were tragically killed. Sir Thomas Booch, the designer of the bridge, was held responsible for the disaster. Fast forward to 2014 and the ferry Norman Atlantic was making headlines. The vessel caught fire in the Adriatic Sea causing panic among passengers. The ferry was owned by Vismar di Navigazione and chartered by Annec Lines. The Adriatic Sea, a body of water separating the Italian peninsula from the Balkan peninsula was the stage for this drama. On the roads, it seems that a large herd of cows decided to stage a sit-in on the M6 in Liverpool. They've brought traffic to a standstill, causing quite the traffic jam. If you're driving, it might be best to take a detour. In other news, the M11 has been transformed into a makeshift airport runway. Due to a strike by air traffic controllers, planes are landing on the road. The M11 has been temporarily closed for this unique operation. Remember, kids, when driving, always keep your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel. This is Polly Beep signing off. And remember, the roads might be in chaos, but I always keep my cool, even if I'm reporting on a motorway mysteriously floating away or a roundabout deciding it's taking a holiday.
1: Sixteen twelve, Calamity
0: Prenderville, our science correspondent, takes us on a journey to 1612 Where Galileo Galilei's blunder led to a remarkable discovery, changing our understanding of the cosmos.
9: Tonight we're time-travelling to 1612, where a blunder by Galileo Galilei led to a remarkable discovery. uh, In a classic case of mistaken identity, Galileo mistook Neptune for a fixed star, but as we know, British innovation always finds a way. Imagine this. Galileo, peering through his telescope, spots a distant point of light. He jots it down as a fixed star, but little did he know, he'd just observed Neptune, the eighth planet from the Sun.
10: Now, Neptune is no ordinary planet. It's denser and smaller than Uranus, with no solid surface to speak of. It's like a giant gaseous blueberry floating in the cosmic jam of space. And speaking of Uranus, Neptune orbits the Sun every 164.8 years. That's a long time, even by celestial standards. If Neptune were a person, it would still be in its terrible twos.
9: So there you have it, a blunder that led to a discovery, a fixed star that wasn't a star at all, A testament to the fact that sometimes mistakes can lead to the most extraordinary findings. It's a testament to British innovation, even though Galileo was Italian. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off.
1: Newsbang, the pulse of truth pounding in the public's ears. Presenting your royal guide, Sandy O'Shaughnessy,
0: for a journey through historical monarchies and modern-day rulers, with a dash of humour and a
11: sprinkle of wisdom. Ah, and a very good evening to you all. Welcome, welcome, and thrice welcome to the Royal Corner of Newsbang Radio. It's your old mate, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, here to regale you with tales of kings and queens from times long past. The sun has set on another day in the Emerald Isle, but our spirits remain as bright as ever. So grab a cuppa, settle in, and let's embark on this regal journey together. Huh? <laughs> now, let's travel back in time to the year 1767. Taxin the Great was sitting pretty on his throne in Thailand, a king like no other. He established Thombri as the new capital after the city of Ayutthaya was reduced to rubble. And what a reign it was. Wars against Burma, Northern Thai Kingdom of Lanna, Laotian principalities, and Cambodia. Taxine had his hands full. Ah. (laughs) But fear not, dear listeners, under his rule, Siam was reunited and expanded to its greatest territorial extent yet. Now that's what I call a successful reign. Ah. (laughs) But let's not stop there. Jumping ahead to 484 AD, we find ourselves in the company of Alaric II, king of the Visigoths, no less. His father, Euric must have been one proud papa when he handed over the reins to his son. Alaric II established his capital at Eresulador in Aquitaine and ruled over Hispania, Gallia, Aquitania and Gallia, Narbonensis with an iron fist. Ah. <laughs> or at least an iron sceptre. The Visigothic Kingdom may have existed from the 5th to the 8th centuries, but Alaric II's legacy lives on. Ah. Speaking of legacies, I received a heartwarming letter from Mary in Galway today. She writes about her grandfather, who used to tell her stories about his time serving under King George V during World War I. It just goes to show that every family has its own unique history, its own tapestry of tales waiting to be unravelled. And while we're on the subject of tales and traditions... Did you hear about Jim from Cork? He found a strange object in his backyard yesterday. Something that looks suspiciously like an ancient artefact from a bygone era. Who knows what secrets it might hold. Perhaps it belonged to some long-forgotten monarch or warrior prince. Or maybe it's just a really fancy rock. Ah. (laughs) So, dear listeners, as we close out this evening's segment, remember that history is full of surprises and hidden treasures waiting to be discovered. Keep your eyes peeled for those little quirks and oddities that make our past come alive, because sometimes they can lead us down paths we never even imagined existed. Until next time, my friends. See you later, alligator, in a wild crocodile. From me, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, wishing you love laughter and a sprinkle of wisdom.
0: And now, a brief detour to the annals of financial history. In 1967, Muriel Sabert made her mark by becoming the first woman to claim a seat on the New York Stock Exchange, thereby redefining the male-dominated realm of finance. A trailblazer, she was rightly christened the first woman of finance. But what does this mean for the trading floor's collective lunch orders, or the ever-important office attire debate? Perkins Stornoway, our business correspondent, is on the scene to shed light on these pressing matters.
12: The stock market's wild today. Dogger, slight or moderate. The New York Stock Exchange, south. Veering southwest, five or six. Muriel Siebert, owning a seat. Up 2.4. Biscay, occasional rain. She became the first woman to join the male members. Hebrides, west. Backing southwest, four or five. Shannon, south, veering southwest, five or six. The year 1967, a significant date. Fastnet, southwest becoming cyclonic, five or six. Muriel Siebert, first woman of finance, chopped tubes up 2.4. Lundy, fair. The first woman to own a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. Trafalgar, fair occasionally moderate. A quick glance at the currency cat. Rockall, west or northwest, three or four. The NYSE is the largest stock exchange in the world, sole decreasing three or four. The exchange's popularity soared and Muriel Siebert was a key figure. Fair Isle, Fair. In 1967 Muriel Siebert joined the male members of the New York Stock Exchange, Cromarty, East or Northeast, three or four. The first woman of finance, a legend in the business world. Thames, light icy patches, occasional moderate. Muriel Siebert, the first woman to own a seat on the NYSE. In conclusion, the business world today is full of excitement and change. Trafalgar, fair, occasionally moderate. Muriel Siebert, the first woman of finance, is a trailblazer for women in the business world. Business. 2018.
0: In a twist that would make even the most jaded Black Mirror fan raise an eyebrow, Netflix has unveiled its first interactive content for adults. The film, Bandersnatch, a part of the science fiction anthology series Black Mirror, has been penned by Charlie Brooker and directed by David Slade. This pioneering cinematic endeavour, which premiered on December 28, 2018, has taken the world by storm, leaving viewers with a sense of wonder and a distinct craving for more. And now, to shed light on the impact of this groundbreaking film, we turn to our reporter, Smithsonia Moss.
7: Now, at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us.
13: Whoa-ho! Y'all ready for some mind-bending, reality-warping, interactive madness? Well, buckle up, buttercups, because we're diving headfirst into the twisted world of Black Mirror, Bandersnatch. Now, let me set the scene for you, babes. It's December 28th, 2018, and Netflix has just dropped a bombshell on us. They've released their first-ever interactive content for adults, and it's part of the legendary science fiction anthology series, Black Mirror. Written by the one and only Charlie Brooker and directed by the equally legendary David Slade, this movie is called Bandersnatch, and it's about to blow your mind. Now, here's the kicker. The interactive nature of this film is a complete surprise to viewers. That's right, y'all. You're not just passively watching this movie. You're actively participating in it. You're making choices, baby. You're deciding the fate of the protagonist, Stephen Butler, Played by the dazzling Fionn Whitehead. But wait, there's more. This movie is set in the 80s, and it's all about the making of a video game called Bandersnatch. Stefan is a young programmer who's trying to bring his vision to life, but things take a dark and twisted turn, y'all. Now, I know what you're thinking. Smithsonian, how the hell do I interact with this movie? Well, my monsters, it's simple. You just press the A, B, C, or D button on your remote control, and voila. You're making choices that affect the outcome of the story. But here's the thing. Every choice you make leads to a different ending. That's right, y'all. You could watch this movie a hundred times and still discover new paths and outcomes. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure book on steroids. Now, I know what you're thinking. Smithsonian. this sounds like a lot of work. And you're right, it is. But trust me, it's worth it. This movie is like a roller coaster ride through the mind of Charlie Brooker, and it's absolutely thrilling. So, what are you waiting for, babes? Grab your remote control, press play, and get ready to dive into the twisted world of Black Mirror Bandersnatch. Just remember every choice you make, every button you press, could lead to a whole new reality. That's all for now, my monsters. Keep it locked on Newsbang for more culture updates. And don't forget to tune in tomorrow for our special report on whether or not aliens exist. Wahoo!
1: Newsbang. The truth is a bitter pill, but it's the only one that works. Edine. 1065. In a revelation that
0: has sent shockwaves through the ecclesiastical community, Westminster Abbey, a hallowed Anglican church and historical epicenter of coronations, burials, and royal weddings, has been traced back to the Romanesque architectural era of Edward the Confessor. This sacred edifice, renowned for its semicircular arches, predates the advent of the Gothic style. As we grapple with the reverberations of this disclosure, we turn to our religious correspondent Pastor Kevin Monstrance for further insights.
10: Good evening, ladies and gents. Your favourite man of the cloth is back with more ramblings and rumblings from days of yore. Now, I may be just a simple pastor, but tales of coronations and cathedrals always make me think of that grand old institution, Westminster Abbey. (laughs) Of course, I never had the honour of worshipping there myself. The closest I came was attending young Prince Edward's christening back in 64, had a prime view of the font, but couldn't see a blasted thing over all the fancy hats. Still, twas an occasion I'll always treasure. <laughs> Reminds me of another treasured house of worship from my youth, good old St Hilda's Church in my home village of little snoring. Our own modest version of Westminster it was, with its weathered Norman arches and ancient gargoyles leering down at us from the eaves. I'll never forget the chill that ran down my spine during my first boyhood service there. (laughs) Of course, the chill may also have been from the draft. St Hilda's was always a rather poorly insulated structure. We certainly didn't have any fancy stained glass to block the elements. (laughs) Why, I remember one winter when a blizzard blew the doors open and dumped six inches of snow right in the sanctuary. Our poor vicar was up to his cassock in the fluffy white stuff. Onward Christian soldiers was never sung with such fervour as we all pitched in to dig out pews and pump the organ bellows. But we managed to clear a path for the bride and groom, who were due to take their vows that afternoon. It was a sacred occasion, after all. A little blizzard wasn't about to halt their march down the aisle. Their union must have been blessed from the start as fifty years later I had the honour of officiating at their golden anniversary service back at St. Hilda's. This time, thankfully, the only thing coming down the aisle was confetti. Though we did have to pause a few times to wait for the ring-bearer's false teeth to stop chattering, he blamed the cold, but I suspect it was more nerves. Never give the duty of rings to a fellow with a mischievous glint in his eye. (laughs) Ah, but listen to me prattle on, I suppose the moral is that whether Westminster or Little Snoring, sacred spaces have a way of inspiring us and bringing us together, be they grand cathedrals or humble country chapels, just mind the drafts and keep an eye on the ring-bearer.
0: And now, the final word on tomorrow's headlines. The Times, Brits Take Savannah, USA. The Telegraph, Java Sunk by Constitution in Brazilian duel. The Guardian, Blitz Continues, London Burns Again. The Mail, Britain's Second Great Fire, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and love the Blitz. And finally, The Sun, Blitzkrieg, We're All Going to Die. That's it, we're out of time, so if you're wondering what to do with the rest of your evening, I suggest
1: you get a good night's sleep, you're going to need it, good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.